Have you ever read something that just kind of catches your attention and makes you stop in your tracks and just take notice of what's written? Maybe you're walking somewhere and there's some kind of warning sign and all of a sudden you didn't expect it to be there and so you stop, you take notice. Maybe it's a bill in the mail for a price that you weren't expecting to pay and so it grabs your attention, you stop, you take notice. Maybe it's a letter from a friend and there's some information in there that you weren't expecting to read and so you stop, you almost have to reread it, look at it again, make sure you understand it, you take notice. We've all been there, haven't we? Where something grabs our attention, something that we read and it, and it just kind of stops us in our tracks. We gotta talk about it with somebody. We to reread it. We got to make sure we're getting this because we weren't expecting to see this. You know, as we've made our way through the minor prophets, some of the prophets can be that way. Perhaps none more so than Nahum. This week we'll start with looking at the book of Nahum. And when you read Nahum, he writes in such a way that it almost causes you to stop and take notice because we see characteristics of God that oftentimes we neglect, sometimes we forget characteristics that maybe we don't even expect to see. Nahum, it's a book that can often be forgotten about. And so then when we read it and we open it up and we see him talk about God and how he's acting and what he's doing, well, it almost makes us pause and make sure that we're reading scripture. Let's check it out this morning. We're going to go ahead and begin in Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came out who plotted against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved images and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are a vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The word Nahum, just the name, the word, it means comfort. 
It's kind of an ironic name for a book that's as brutally written as this one. This book, it speaks about the utter destruction of a city. It talks about a people who will not have any more descendants, a people who will not live to see the future. The book graphically relays how that punishment will happen. And it's perhaps the most bold, the most brutal writings in all of scripture. Uh, you almost have to squint to see any kind of shades of hope in it at all. And yet at the same time, Nahum is beautifully and masterfully written. In fact, if you were to read translators who translated Nahum from the original Hebrew into English, you'd learn just the mastery in which Nahum uses words, how he plays off of words and how he uses images and ties them to other things. And in fact, he'll even play off his own name in chapter three. And when he starts writing the book of Nahum, it begins as this Hebrew acrostic and he gets about halfway through the alphabet before he just kind of changes his style altogether. And he paints these images that are so vivid that they just tend to stick in your mind. You might not want them to stick in your mind, but they tend to stick in your mind anyway. They're very, very tough to forget. And yet at the same time, we don't know anything about Nahum. We don't know who he was. We, he just kind of introduces himself at the beginning of the book. Hi, my name's Nahum. I'm a prophet and I'm from Elkosh. And that's really all we know. And we don't even know where Elkosh is. I mean, there's people over there in the Middle East right now digging around in the desert trying to determine where Elkosh is. And so these archaeologists, they're writing articles back and forth to each other. Uh, we think Elkosh is over here. We think it's over there. Maybe it's right here. You know, they're just guessing and they're looking. In, they have some information, but they don't know. They don't know. They're still trying to find it. They're still trying to excavate it. And the point is, they don't know. When they find it, I'll be sure to let you know, but they haven't found it yet, at least not certainly. They're still digging. We don't know anything about Nahum. We don't know. We don't, Elkosh, where is that? We don't, we don't know anything about him. He's a prophet. There's no other record. There's nothing. He's just this prophet who kind of shows up and speaks to the Hebrews during this time of transition. It was a time when they had very poor leadership themselves, godless leadership, and a time when Assyria was the bully on the block and it was difficult. And so... At this time, when, he, when the Judah is in this type of transition period, the book of Nahum, well, the people, they latch onto it. The people of Judah, they grab hold of it. And it's going to be a book that, is, that people will latch onto throughout the centuries. The early church is going to grab hold of the book of Nahum. And yet today... Well, it's largely forgotten. We don't tend to grab onto it so much because this is a book that kind of makes us uncomfortable. We, we see a side of God that sometimes kind of bothers us, just the brutal way in which he exacts his judgment, a side that skeptics look at and say, oh, look, the God of the Old Testament is kind of different than the God of the New Testament. Who wants a God like that? Anyway, it is a book that can make us uncomfortable because the book of Nahum is about the destruction, complete and utter annihilation of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. It's the hub of the entire Assyrian empire. And this is how the book begins. Hey, I'm wiping it out. It's going to be no more. Nahum announces that Nineveh will be destroyed. And if you're living in Judah at that time, when Nahum comes with this message, 
You're cheering. I mean, you got your hands in the air. You're hooping and hollering. Why? Because these are comforting words. Some of the nations, when they conquered other nations, they kind of had this enlightened view of nation building. And so when the Babylonians, for example, when they become strong and they begin to power, uh, take over other nations, they don't just kill and annihilate everybody. No, they actually try to make the people become Babylonians. Now, they rip families apart. They do some other brutal stuff, but not the way the Assyrians did it. I mean, the Assyrians, they were so brutal, so ruthless. We talked about it when we looked at Jonah, but they cut your limbs off of you. I mean, they looked at you as you were dying and kind of shook your hand. I mean, and after you were dead, they, then they would crucify you just as a warning to anyone else who might be walking around. Hey, you don't want to mess with us. I mean, they, they wanted to put the fear of God into everybody and they wanted everybody to know that they were God. I mean, this is the type of brutality that the Assyrians displayed on all the world. And so, you know, Judah hears that Assyria is going to be done away with. Well, this is welcome news. You can imagine, you get the idea why the people of Judah would be celebrating, why this book of Nahum is such a comfort to them. And so when Nahum writes... Everybody praises God. Nineveh is going to be destroyed. This is good news. It's about time, God. Where have you been? I don't know why it took this long, but finally it's going to happen. Jonah, remember Jonah, he also went to Nineveh and he prophesied about a hundred years before Nahum. Nahum, we, we do have an idea of when he spoke. He mentions the fall of Thebes and we know that that happened in 663. And so we know somewhere between 663 BC and 612 BC, that's when Assyria fell to Babylon, that somewhere in there is when Nahum spoke. So yeah, in 612 BC, Nineveh is taken out, Assyria is conquered, and such that none of us ever met a Ninevite. Everything that God speaks through Nahum happens, the Assyrians are totally overrun and destroyed, and they disappear from history. And so here's what Nahum tells the Assyrians. Your plans, all, all these plans you're making, you're, you're making these plans, they're not going to help. You call your forces, you call your special troops, whatever army you've got, it does not matter. When I come against you, none of that's going to matter. All the alliances that you've made, all the deals you've struck, none of that is going to be able to help you when I come up against you. Nineveh is going to be overthrown and there's not even going to be one descendant left to carry on this Ninevite lineage. And so you have no future. It's over. I mean, this is the message of Nahum to Nineveh. Nineveh, it's over. It's done. You're done. And if you're Judah, you're throwing a party because they are the biggest, baddest bully on the block. And now God is going to avenge you. God, he, he's going to reach out to Nineveh and he's going to wipe them out. You know, Jonah had come and, and Jonah, he's preaching a message to Nineveh. Hey, 40 days and Nineveh, no more. But Jonah didn't want to. He didn't want to preach that message. He's like, God, why do we have to tell him 40 days? Let's just kind of wipe him out now. I don't want to preach the message. And then he does, and there's this little bit of a revival that takes place. But Jonah, he didn't stick around to disciple them or anything. And so basically he leaves them worse off than when he met them because they quickly go back to their old ways and they become more brutal than they were before, more ruthless, more bloodthirsty, more evil. 
And now God says, it's over. I can't put up with this anymore. The time has run out. Again and again and again, throughout the minor prophets, we see God announcing judgment. But oftentimes when we see that God announces this judgment, it's going to be a while before he carries it out. He announces the judgment, but then years go by, generations go by before God actually carries out that judgment. And this isn't true just in the minor prophets. I mean, think of the book of Revelation. You have the cries, the tears of the 144,000. These are the 144,000 believers who are crying out for the sake of everything they've suffered on account of Christ. They're saying, God, when are you going to make this right? Jesus, when are you going to make this right? How long? How long do we have to wait until justice comes? And each time Jesus is going to tell them, essentially, just a little bit longer. Each time you get the impression that Jesus is just leaving the door open open just a little bit longer so that as many as possible will come into relationship with him. But too often we mistake God's uh, justice being delayed for weakness instead of mercy. And so people start thinking, hey, just because God doesn't, well, that means he can't. And that's a fatal mistake. It's what Paul's going to write to the Galatians about. And he's going to say, hey, don't be fooled. Whatever a man plans, uh, plants, that's what he's going to reap. Well, it's the law of the harvest. Whatever seed goes in, well, that's the kind of crop that's going to come back up. Whatever you plant, that's what you're going to get. And so this works for good. When you plant good, what are you going to reap? You're going to reap good. When you plant evil, it works the same way. It's going to be evil. And so Jesus, he tells stories about this. And he talks about, hey, there's this harvest and you're planting good seed. And what comes up? 30, 60, 100 times as much. Look at all this produce. It's great. But the same thing works with evil. You plant evil, what comes back? 30, 60, 100 times as much. How does it work? Because the seed goes in, the plant comes up, and it's got all these seeds on it. The seeds go down, boom, it just multiplies. And that's kind of how life works, is that what you plant, you get back. And sometimes we think, well, I'm not getting any consequences for my behavior. What I've planted, I'm not reaping. Well, just because it ha hasn't happened yet, don't think you're getting away with it. Because truth is like acid. It, it has a way of eating through anything. It has a way of coming out. You think you've got a secret, but let's face it, in today's culture with cameras everywhere and Facebook, social media, the internet, and all kinds of truth has a way of coming out. And there are consequences for your action. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, it has a way of coming out. And then the bill comes due. Sooner or later, there are consequences for our actions. And I know we live in a society where, hey, we try to almost protect people from consequences, right? Kids, they're growing up. Oh, we don't want them to suffer consequences. We want to insulate them. And now what's happening? Well, colleges are hiring counselors because college students are now really suffering real consequences for the first time in their lives. And hey, mom and dad's always been this backstop to kind of protect that. We haven't had these kind of consequences before. And so counselors are needed to help walk these young men and women through this. That's what's happening. And so you think you've got a secret. You, you think it's not going to happen. No, we experience consequences for the choices that we make. And so this is what's happening now for Nineveh. Sooner or later, God comes to Nineveh and he says, there are consequences. 
And the people of Judah are saying, finally, finally, there's consequences. And we have the same thing today, don't we? Because we can look around our world and we can wonder, God, how long? How long will you tolerate this evil regime? How long are you going to allow this to happen? How long is that going to go on? How long? When are there going to be consequences? And we can develop a list of all the places and all the people who need those consequences. There's just one problem with this, though. We never seem to make the list. You know how that is? We never kind of raise our hand and say, hey, God, I need all those bad consequences for all the stuff I've done. You know, send it my way. No, we find a way of never raising our hand. And if we were Nineveh, oh, we'd do the same thing. Why? Because we'd find a way of getting comfortable there. There are certain rules of Nineveh, the certain way in which Nineveh operated that we'd get comfortable with. And here, here are some of the rules. Here are some of the ways in which Nineveh operated. It was this idea that only the strong survived. I mean, hey, you got to be strong. You got to be self-assured. You got to, if you want something, you take it. And if you're strong enough to keep it, well, then it's yours. And your future, well, your future is whatever you determine it to be. If you want your future, you set goals, you make a plan, you make it happen. I mean, that's how Nineveh operated. But that's not how the kingdom works. But sometimes in our culture, that's how we work too. A lot of times, how does it work? Well, hey, I want to get better. I want to operate in a different way. So what do I do? I go to the self-help section. And there's all these books and all these resources that talk about how we can better ourselves and how we can get And it's the same type of rules, the same type of operation systems that existed in Nineveh. You want your future? Here's how you get it. Here's how you become more self-assured. Here's how you become more confident. Here's how you set goals. Here's how you develop a plan. Here's how you craft a vision for your life. Here's what you do. And not one of those resources will ever tell you, sit down and pray and seek God's wisdom. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because if you want to try to make something out of your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, then you will find it. See, your future is not yours to decide. It's not your future to call. Everything about you, everything about your past, your present, your future, it all belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And none of those resources will ever tell you that. Nineveh would never tell you that. And the question is, Will we say that? <laughs> or do we get comfortable operating in this system in which we live? Does our counsel end up amounting to the same thing as these self-help resources? Well, here's how you do this and here's how you do that. Do we draw people to the supremacy of Christ, to his lordship in our lives, to his sovereignty and his control, to walk with him. And how do we do that? And how does that then affect our vision and our calling and who we are made to be? You understand the world is not frustrated with the church because we are different. Our society gets frustrated with us because we are not different enough. I mean, we're in this post-Christian part now in America. We have the lowest people claiming to believe in Jesus than we've ever had in this country. Why? Because they expect us to be different. 
And in too many ways, we're just the same. We just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus into the rest of the stuff that we're doing. And they look at us and they say, hey, we, we've heard that the church is this place of belonging and this place of hope and this place of joy and, and this place of excitement and adventure and all these things. And, and they come and they say, well, it's not really all that different. I can't see that the people are all that different. And, and, and they come and what do they find? They tend to find legalism, hypocrisy. They find surface relationships. They find a show. So this this is not this transformative relationship that they thought when what they need to see is that transformative relationship. That, wow, a relationship with Jesus, he dramatically impacts marriages and families and they're united and there's purpose and there's faithfulness and there's discipleship and there's joy in all circumstances and, and there's hope. And this is what they're looking for. The problem is not that we're different. It's that we're not different enough. And so what are we trusting in? Well, we trust in all this other stuff. We just kind of mix Jesus in with it. And that's kind of like Nineveh. Nineveh, they trusted in water. Oh, they talked about all these other gods and stuff. But ultimately, they trusted in water. Nineveh was located along the Tigris River. It actually went right through the city. And it was a huge city, okay? Nineveh was 1,800 acres. It was right across from modern-day Mosul in Iraq. And 1,800 acres. It was a huge, massive city. Just for reference, when you think of ancient cities, Jericho. Jericho is about 10 acres. Uh, Damascus in Syria was about 200 acres. Jerusalem, well, it started out as 10 acres, and then Solomon grew it a little bit to about 30 acres. But that's the scope of it. Nineveh, 1,800 acres. It's a massive city in the ancient world. And Nineveh thought because they had this river and this river, created these moats and this natural defenses and these resources. You had to have water in the ancient world. And so because they have all this, they say, hey, we're well defended. We're well resourced. We're good. But in 612 BC, they weren't good. The Babylonians, the Medes and the Scythians, they come on in and they wipe them out to the point where Nineveh was no more. There were no descendants, just like God said, hey, there's not going to be anything left. There's nothing left. They're wiped out. In fact, it was only about 150 years ago in which Nineveh was excavated. And they did discover Nineveh, and they excavated them all. You go over to the uh, British Museum in London, and you can actually see a lot of artifacts from Nineveh. It's all been excavated, but just what God said happened. Your name will not be perpetuated. God will make a grave for you because you are a vile. And then Judah gets word. (laughs) This next verse, it talks about from the mountains emerges one who brings the message. How How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, when you hear that verse, if it's familiar to you, you probably aren't thinking of it from Nahum. You're thinking about it in Romans when Paul wrote. When Paul wrote about it, he's talking about the gospel and how beautiful are the feet of those who share the good news of the gospel. But he gets this phrase from Nahum. But when Nahum writes it, he's not talking about God really in relationship to this. What he's saying is how beautiful are the feet of those who come and say, Nineveh's destroyed. Nineveh's done. How beautiful are they? Why? Because now there's peace. 
There can be peace. We don't have to be worried all the time. We don't have to be concerned that Assyria is going to come and wipe us out because they've been wiped out. And this is good news. It's very good news that God has avenged his people. It is a comfort for them. It was worth rejoicing over. And it is for us too. That we have a God who is this great, who is this mighty, a God who is jealous for his people, a God who will avenge his people. You know, it's interesting, the, the prophet Nahum, it was popular for the people of Israel. That they grabbed hold of this. Why? Because the people of Israel were, were always the, the minimalized person. They're, they're always the scrawny kid, okay? There's always a bigger bully on the block. It was Assyria, and then it was Babylon, and then it was Greece. And so they latched onto this because they knew, hey, there's no way we can stand up against, against these massive empires. They're too big. They're too great for us. Well, we can't, we can't do it ourselves. And then the early church will latch on to the book of Nahum as well. And so you'll read a lot about the early church talking about the book of Nahum. Why? Because Rome is there. And the thing with all these empires, the Syrians, Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, they all worship these false gods. They're all godless, evil empires. And here's the people of faith. And they're looking and they're thinking, well, the only way we stand a chance is if God protects us, is if he avenges us, if he looks out for us. And now, well, the book of Nahum tends to get minimalized, tends to get lost. Why? Because here in America, well, we're kind of the big kid on the block, aren't we? We can avenge ourselves. We can protect ourselves. We can look out for ourselves. We, we, we've got this. See, it's only when you're small, when you're insignificant, that this book of Nahum becomes so important. And really, when we think about it, if we have this right view of God and this right understanding of the world, well, this book is critical because if you ever find yourself wondering, man, I'm just so weak. There's this darkness that I kind of feel. And there's just darkness that I see. And I, how can I possibly stand up against it? If you're ever tempted, just, I don't, I don't even know if doing the right thing matters because look at all this evil that's going on. Maybe I'll just kind of jump in. The book of Nahum is this great reminder that, no, it's ultimately God's in control. And it's worth doing the right thing. It's worth. Why? Because God will avenge and he will protect and he will take care. And see, that's ultimately where our trust has to come from. The... The Ninevites, they trusted in water, they trusted in rivers. And you look through the history and you'll see so many of these massive empires trusting in their strategy, trusting in their military, trusting in their economy, trusting in their innovation. And God is saying that you must trust in me because the whole earth melts when I decide to act. I hold it all. I have this type of power. We trust God that he is our avenger. He and him alone can avenge. See, Nahum is this book that when we read it, we stop and we take notice because there's an aspect of it in which God seems so brutal. And the way he mets out justice sometimes makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so we almost need to reread it and, and kind of look at it again and make sure that we're getting this because it's an aspect of God's character that sometimes we miss. But when you read it and you really understand it, you see that God's love and his justice perfectly meet together for his people because he loves so much 
that there's going to be justice, that he's not just going to allow sin to go on forever. But at the same time, he's this patient, merciful God who sometimes we mistake that mercy for weakness. But when he acts, he acts for our good and he will indeed act. His goodness and his justice are perfectly displayed in the protection of his people. And it reminds us that we really can trust him and him alone. Heavenly Father, so many times in life we can get distracted and we can trust in our abilities. We can trust in just the way society is shaped and built and trust in all these other things. God, call us back through this book of Nahum to remember that you and you alone hold our future, just like you've held our past and you hold our present, that you are the one who calls it into being. God, help us to trust in you and in you alone. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.